Hello, I'm Kevin Barrett of Truth Jihad Radio. I can say whatever I want and bring on guests who say pretty much what they want to say. Thanks to listeners like you who subscribe by way of the subscribe at Substack button at truthjihad.com. Welcome back. This is the second hour of Truth Jihad Radio right here at revolutionradio.com. Also broadcasting on noliesradio.org. That's where the archive shows up and also at the unsreview, unz.com. And maybe some other places too every now and then. I don't put these shows on YouTube much anymore because I just get my channel frozen because somebody is always likely to say something that's not exactly what uh, the mind control mavens approve of. And particularly it's that medical misinformation bugaboo that gets us uh, frozen and censored. But I've, I've had other radio shows censored for all sorts of reasons. And uh, that's why it's not on YouTube so much anymore. Anyway, let's talk about geopolitics. That was uh, a fun uh, first hour. Uh, but it, we, we shied away from geopolitics with Daniel Pinchback. He admitted that's not really his forte. Uh, my guest this hour, Matt Arrett, is very much at home in talking geopolitics, and I invited him on to talk about his three-part series on anti-China psyops. Well, it's titled Debunking Anti-China Psyops. You know, a lot of folks, including people like Daniel, uh, feel that China is kind of threatening, and the top levels in China are working with the bad guys elsewhere in the world. And that's, in, in some cases, there are even people in our so-called alternative sphere who are hardcore sort of new Cold War cheerleaders and total China bashers. But Matthew Arrett is definitely not one of them. So let's uh, talk about that issue from his point of view. Hey, welcome, Matt. How are you? Hey, Kevin. Always great to be on. Yeah, good to have you back. So so very good series. And I, I, I think you're a kind of a balanced and reasonable voice on this question of what's up with the seeming new Cold War with China. Uh, but how would you respond to somebody like Daniel Pinchbeck, who in the first hour said that he kind of suspects that at some level there's collusion going on at the top levels between the West and China, and he thinks China is up to its ears in COVID and other shenanigans, and that you know we're no longer in a world of sovereign nation states that uh, the top level, they're, they're very likely uh, colluding, including colluding on this dystopian project, um, the, uh, you know, the Great Reset and all of that. Uh, so how, how would you respond to that point of view? Well, I, I, I think that uh, my approach is to try to look for the nuance. I mean, a lot of people tend to make very polarized, absolute judgments about things without taking the time to fully appreciate the, the context of the historical dynamics, the, the struggles between sets of ideologies. And there's no country in the world that is not untouched by its own deep state apparatus, right? Um, the United States, and I, I, that was the topic of our last conversation, uh, is not just one behemoth thing, and that was the subject of my recent book series as well on the clash of the two Americas. There's obviously something historically um, based upon something good going back to 1776, which is anti-imperial, fundamentally in alignment with an idea that law must be uh, in harmony with the true nature of a creative uh, species made in the image of a loving creator. 
and all great presidents, there's many great presidents who die while in office. And if you look at their policies and what they're fighting for internationally, you'll find the same sort of positive aspect of the U.S., which there is this other Anglo-American imperial thing that has recently become known as deep state, <laughs> whatever shadow government, whatever you want to call it, which is uh, has been trying to essentially, uh, you know, impose its own ideology um, onto the world using the U.S. as a sort of dumb giant uh, to crush the weak. Um, China is no different in the sense that there's a battle uh, throughout its its own history. And I think by appreciating some of those uh, dynamics, you can better look at what Xi Jinping is actually dealing with. Um, and that was that came out in, in my trilogy, uh, which I mean, part of the reason why I wrote the trilogy is I, I'm in a weird position where, you know, about half of the audience that comes to my websites are um, are, you know, they tend to be American patriots. They recognize that there is a great reset depopulation agenda that's that's underway to destroy um, their society. And they also tend to be very anti-Chinese. There's just a lot of psyops that's out there across conservative media to sort of spin and frame all information to make it seem as though China is the big bad supervillain. Ignoring the fact that when you look at who actually has been trying to destroy China for hundreds of years, what power structures, you'll find that they're the same power structures that have been trying to destroy the United States or the better part of the United States for that same time. And then the other half of my audience comes are, are pro-Chinese, pro-Belt and Road Initiative uh, people who tend to be very anti-American, right? So here I am sort of trying to figure out what is my role in, in my wife, Cynthia Chung, who is a, a co-author, is in a similar position where we're, we're trying to figure out how do you – uh, help educate people to the real nature of the game and how we're being played to ultimately give our consent to a third world war by going along or, or, or drinking this anti-China Kool-Aid. Okay, but China yeah, has its own deep state, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The people in the alternative sphere are, are drinking the anti-China Kool-Aid. And, and that it kind of reminds me of the way that some of them were also – uh, drinking anti-Muslim Kool-Aid, uh, not increasingly as time went by after 9/11, the kind of Alex Jones crowd and you know, Paul Joseph Watson and people like that. Um, how, how do we help those people uh, cool off a little bit and and drop that xenophobia? Well, you know, I, I try to wield my facts. You know, I, I I approach things from the standpoint of history always to just get across. Um, what are the historical dynamics? And, and, you know, there's some fun paradoxes for these people, like, for example, the fact that George Soros um, said openly in a, a 2020 Davos speech that the two greatest threats to his open society were, uh, number one, Donald Trump's USA and Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative. And this is the same moment that the China-U.S. trade deal, the first phase where China was, a, was going to buy up $350 billion for phase one of, um, you know, the reindustrialization policy of the U.S. because Trump was trying in a certain way to rebuild American manufacturing that had been hollowed out over over 40 years of globalization. But that idea of a U.S., China and also Russia alliance um, for common projects that would be in everybody's interest was something that has always scared the hell out of a lot of these very evil uh, players that George Soros represents. And when you look at George Soros, um, not only was you know he a part of an operation to try to destroy China throughout the 1980s while he was doing the same thing with various liberalization, privatization projects in Russia. Um, he even had one of his key operatives who became the uh, secretary general of the Chinese Communist Party in the 80s. And I, I uh, that, that guy's name was Zhao Ziyang. 
And he ran a think tank with George Soros directly, and he was the head of China, right? That was a very high-level control um, to bring in a depopulation agenda. And in 1989, Soros was kicked out. They just, you know, the Chinese intelligentsia realized how they were being set up to be destroyed. Um, they put down their color revolution in 89, and uh, Zhao Ziyang was put under house arrest. Many of his allies, his co- co-conspirators, were, were arrested. Some, many of them fled to uh, the United States with the help of uh, – triads in hong kong and mi6 and cia um that's openly acknowledged as part of operation Yellowbird, and they became sort of a an, you know a deep state in uh, in exile continuously running operations in the same way that the russian oligarchs that were kicked out by putin went all to the to you know the united kingdom where they've set up operations to run all sorts of various cultural warfare and you know literal color revolutionary operations uh, against russia from safer sanctuary in britain so I try to, you know, get across what is the actual structure of evil, where is it located, and you know, when you when you frame things, because I think a lot of the people like like Paul Joseph Watson or many of the people who are um, susceptible to the Epoch Times sort of analysis, they uh, tend to think of China today as it was in 1966 to 76 under the Color Revolution run by the Gang of Four. They so they're just transposing these past dynamics onto the present situation and they don't realize that it's not really nation states that are running the show and it's not like china has that character anymore china has been recovering for 50 years uh from the destruction that was done in that that color or cultural revolutionary period um which was its own great reset yeah right so So, so so, so t- speaking of uh, Soros uh, seeing Trump and China as the big two threats to the open society, uh, w- what is that open society vision of his? On the surface, you know, it claims to be a, a certain uh, philosophical commitment to it. It's a certain kind of liberalism, I suppose. And I, I guess he would claim that his problem is with strong states that are going to uh, repress um, individuals and uh, and and you know, pe- kind of uh, the freedom of people to uh, to do what they want, think what they want, uh, spend their money, invest their money as they want. So mm-hmm. it's it's basically a a, a form of uh, of liberalism. And yet you say he's also uh, a depopulationist. Now, if you were going to try to uh, depopulate the planet. Obviously, you would have to have huge uh, powers of social control. You know, you couldn't just let things go uh, happily. You know, under liberalism, uh, letting people do what they want. So, how, how do you sort of reconcile uh, Soros as a control freak villain on the one hand, and as an open society uh, liberal uh, guy on the other? No, there, there's no contradiction at all. Um, you, you first got to look at um, George Soros's affiliation with Karl Popper, who wrote – he was sort of the founder of Open Society. He wrote a book called Open Society and Its Enemies at uh, the London School of Economics, which is a, a Fabian society school. Uh, Soros, after he uh, you know, <laughs> had the best days of his life working for the Nazis, which is what he says in an interview in the 90s. Um, that really made him the man who he was, right? He, so he was talent searched. People saw and, and liked his sociopathic character. And he fell under the sway for about six years at the London School of Economics of Karl Popper. And, and this is sort of what shaped the role he was to play throughout life um, when he came out of that school. He uh, became the founder of the first uh, 
real modern hedge fund called Quantum Management, and that was set up with seed money from Evelyn de Rothschild in 1968, which became part of a coterie of what became, you know, effectively uh, mercenaries of the consumer society era. So after the U.S. dollar, or I mean, after the U.S. dollar was floated from the fixed exchange rate system, that was part of the former industrial economic model that had, you know, run society for a long time. The U.S the U.S. dollar was separated from real productivity and floated onto speculative, uh, ex- you know, floating exchange rates. And with that deregulation of the system, there was a new type of game in town of, you know, an empire masquerading by free trade ultra-liberalism, but with the the overarching agenda to just decapitate all nation states. Because, you know, under liberalism, under globalization, under, under the world uh, trade organization, you're not allowed to do protectionism. You're not allowed to protect your people from the markets. You have to just sort of let your sentinels down and let the speculators um, do whatever they want to maximize their profits. And that became the tool to destroy third world countries and bring them under the control of a supranational hegemon above the power of nation states. It also included uh, hollowing out the United States itself by by turning the U.S. into a consumer society cult basket case, right, which could not produce for itself anymore. So Soros always played a, a very big role at destroying nations who were belligerent or prone to nationalist ten- tendencies by speculating against their currencies. He did that well throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s. And uh, basically, if you look at Karl Popper, part of this uh, – and, and you know, Soros himself – uh, the Open Society Foundation was set up in 1979. That was the same year that uh, Kissinger uh, – well, not that. I mean Kissinger, the Club of Rome, all these different freaks who who really opened up the door to this new model where China was supposed to become the producer of of the rest of the, the developed world. They were going to – the Chinese were going to remain poor forever in, in Kissinger's mind and, and in Soros's mind, and they would just produce cheap stuff. They would have a small rich class, and they would they would never – the masses would never remain get uh, wealthy enough to buy what they make, and we would never make what we consume. So nobody would be really independent. And so open society was created in '79, and um, the idea with Soros, and you could see this with his um, um, Institute for New Economic Thinking. It's a think tank he created in 2007. It, it was tied to the Chatham House groups in London. It's partially Oxford based. It's designed effectively to promote a two-tiered society. In in Soros's worldview, you need to have um, a world with maximum maximum illusion of democracy and freedom for the majority of the slaves of the earth who will have the illusion, but not the reality, of democratic power. So that means like basically convince everybody that their freedom is in their hedonistic license. It's not really. Um, it's not really true freedom because true freedom is tied to your conscience and your ability to develop your full potentials as a citizen um, to not and, and not just be a hedonistic beast. So the idea of the Soros version um, was, OK, give people local mini uh, hedonistic senses of freedom and local mini de- democratic sensibilities that they could have local control over whatever little mini part of the world um, that they that they were a part of. But the actual real levers of control would be always in the hand of the social engineers managing the system from the top down. Um, and you know, if you if you look at again people like uh, or even his theories of um, Soros has a, a theory of re- reflexivity, and he's utilizing as is Karl Popper 
certain ideas of the Copenhagen School of Quantum Mechanics that utilizes the um, the model of of uh, stochastic gas theory to shape their idea of politics and governance. So in in a you know if you have um for example um a, a, a you know a, 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 a what do you call it a spray can of gas molecules that you heat up the gas molecules will as it gets hotter move around more and more and more until it blows up and as the gas can blows up inside of a room you'll have at the very beginning of the blow up a lot of activity a lot of potential things will be molecules will be hitting each other but as time moves forward on the timeline you'll have less activity higher degrees of entropy less less potential for change as things move into equilibrium uh, they see human beings, the masses, as gas molecules moving stochastically without a higher um, principle of of identity governing them, which was would normally be what a healthy human being is is fed off of through their faith, their religion, their love of family, their respect for their elders and their children, their love of nation, nationalism. These are principles that tap us in as individuals that are that are mortal into a higher continuity of a species that we're a part of which gives us a, a love and a, and a desire even to die if need be if it if it defends a, something a, a deeper principled cause or the health of our soul or conscience we will do things that are not predictable the way a you know a lower hedonistic beast who's just perpetually afraid of their mortality will tend to to to, to live and shape their identities so Soros has always been sort of a part of that crowd. You could see it for by, based on the power structures he works with, the sophistical you know operations that he is. I mean, just just you know, look at his funding of of different sorts of color revolutionary movements all across <laughs> the uh, you know Georgia, Ukraine, Philippines. Uh, his his work with, or even the United States. You know, look at his work with Dominion Systems and uh, Lord Mark Malik Brown, who runs Smartmatic, that did a lot of work to initiate a color revolution inside the United States, or his work in founding the International Crisis Group, which creates you know all of the on the ground reporting of crisis areas like Iraq or Syria or Libya or Yemen or wherever that is then used as documents for, by international governments, NATO, to bomb countries like they did in Iraq or, or in Libya. Uh, look at his role in the International Criminal Court that's used to justify why leaders like the Sudan's Bashir uh, is bad and evil and should and this country should be carved up, which is what Susan Rice did working with Soros and Mark Malik Brown. So you just look at what they're actually doing over what they're actually saying, and you start seeing what they're a part of and what their real agenda is beyond the nice words of freedom and anti-authoritarianism that they blather about. It doesn't mean anything. And certainly this billionaire class of which Soros is a leading member doesn't really seem dedicated to preserving freedom in the West. On the contrary, you know whether or not they're gearing up for war with China, and I think they are. Daniel Pinchbeck wasn't so sure in the first hour. Uh, but whether or not they are, they're certainly happy to uh, use ideas from China as well as from anywhere else and, and their own ideas as well to roll back uh, freedom uh, in the West. Yeah. And uh, so uh, I, you and in your, in your piece on China uh, and uh, your debunking of anti-China psyops point out that the Chinese system – which you don't, of course, uh, fully go along with in terms of its approach to freedom of expression and religion, is seems to be well. I don't you don't put it this way, but as I read you, it's that those aspects of the Chinese system are the lesser evil 
compared to what these uh, banksters are trying to do in the West and actually what trying to do worldwide. And so what, what are the reasons why uh, Chinese social credit and regulation and or repression of religion are a, a lesser evil than uh, what the Western banksters are doing? Well, yeah, you you got it. I mean, it, China itself is uh, a friend of mine made the point not that long ago that we'll never really know what China would have been had they not been the target of um, color revolutionary tactics over the past decades. Um, you know, the the thing today is that uh, China is is trying very much to survive. It is part of an international alliance with Russia, very closely integrated with other countries too, working to create an alternative system known as the multipolar alliance, um, founded upon a totally different operating system, a different paradigm of value, a different idea of win-win cooperation. It, it, there's, it's a different world of thinking, which is much more in harmony with how human beings actually will have a common interest in the future. Um, so China is, if, if you look at their history, there has been an effort to carve them up with CIA and other MI6 and, and other intelligence agencies that have sponsored uh, radicalization movements of uh, Islamic groups in Xinjiang, which has a border. China has a border with, with Afghanistan, you know. Um, we know that throughout the 1990s into up, up to the year 2014, there were well over 100 cases of terrorist activities inside of China with radicalized groups, just like there were uh, across the Middle East. Um which is largely the effect of people like Zbigniew Brzezinski having, you know, you know, played the Islamic card against the Soviet Union and funding radical uh, groups, madrasas in Afghanistan and in Pakistan uh, with the help of the Saudis for a very long time that created the foundation for what became later known as Al-Qaeda and ISIS. So China has had to deal with it, but they didn't deal with it by bombing a country back to the Stone Age. They've had to deal with it in their in their own way, which is compl- it's a breath of fresh air compared to what we've got, because they're doing economic development, they're doing trade schools, training, things like that. And for those who say that you're not allowed to be a, you know, a Muslim in China, there's 24,000 mosques, for Christ's sake, in, in Xinjiang. You know, it's a higher per capita rate of mosques than I think anywhere else in the Western world. Um, and they're providing trade schools. And in a lot of these so-called re-education camps, I mean, they're providing, you know, civ- civics classes, language, history, trade and they're giving people opportunity to work and, and create a better life for themselves. So that's very different from, again, look at what we've done by destroying the vital infrastructure of countries that didn't even have anything to do with 9-11. Or, you know, look at what we've done by putting so many Muslims without trial or jury or anything into Guantanamo Bay, even our own people who have whistleblown. There's so many cases from Daniel Hale to uh, Chelsea Manning to so many uh, people have just blown the whistle um, on U.S. abuses and, and murders of, of civilians um, and found themselves facing now prison time. Uh, Assange being another one, right, in his own way. Um, so China, you you know, there's no actual situation where you cannot practice religion in China. The, the thing is, though, that and China even has it in their constitution that religious freedoms are protected. It's just that you have to have a licensed uh, a license from the state to operate one of the official churches, which is Protestant, Catholic denominations. You have uh, Muslim, same thing, Buddhist temples, um, because there has been, whether, you know, for over 150 years, tons and tons of examples of Western intelligence agencies utilizing the cover of missionary operations to fuel uh, the dissolution of China, going back to the Taiping Rebellion 
which was a Christian-led civil war using a synthetic Christian cult created by Jesuitical missionaries inside of China uh, in the 1840s during the Opium Wars that uh, killed 30 million Chinese. And that's still a very big uh, wound that and a memory that, they, that they're living with. And NED, the National Endowment for Democracy, CIA, which is a CIA operation, um, and Gersh – oh, the, the actual head of the, the NED has even said that the things we do today are the things that the CIA has always done covertly and we, we just now do it officially. Um, I don't like their social credit stuff, you know, uh, and if you listen to people like uh, Kissinger or Soros speak well of China, you'll find that they're always speaking well. Specifically, the only thing that they like is social credit and centralized command structures. Um, now, the reality is I could see why it would be justified because the world is run by not nation states, but a supranational oligarchy that wants to get rid of nation states, get one world government and reduce the world population under a, you know, COP26 type Green New Deal Great Reset, um, which is what China has, by their actions, completely, completely opposed on on so many levels. So if you judge, like they say in the Bible, right, you, you, you judge, judge me by their by or you judge them by their fruits. Um, in terms of like who will how will you know whether somebody's a false messiah or not in the future? And I'm not saying China's messiah. I'm using just a metaphor here. But you judge people by their fruits of their actions. Um, China is building the types of big projects, creating cadres of gen- you know people who are trained across Africa with skills to be engineers, building full spectrum economic systems um, across Kenya, Nigeria, every country that they do business with. They're actually doing honest business and building increasing the knowledge base and economic sovereignty of these countries working with the BRI and they're funding it through national banks that are not privately run central banks. That was one thing that George Soros failed to do, which unfortunately was successful in Russia in the 80s under Gorbachev and Yeltsin was that they created private uh, central banks. They they got rid of Glass-Steagall bank separations between commercial and investment banking in Russia and in China. It's the only country in the world that has maintained control of state banking, can admit long-term credit, productive credit, and has maintained a separation between speculation and investment banking. So unfortunately right now, yeah, they've had to keep a certain amount of control on these operations, and there's a lot of them. Um, and I don't like social credit, and I know – So, that's, so wait, wait, that's man, what wait, Kissinger specific, likes. Yeah. Specifically, why, why do they need social credit to uh, protect their state banking system? Oh, that's different. They, I'm just saying that's sort of more of the contextual stuff I'm putting out there. But to, in terms of their national integrity as a nation from all of the different forms of uh, deep state apparatuses, the different networks that are tied to foreign intelligence agencies, there's a variety of things that are trying to turn the state and turn different clusters of people within the state into um, you know, destabilizing forces. So part of the, um, part of the social credit thing – and it – is that one, its primarily target is the more corrupt part of the elites amongst the Chinese deep state, which is huge. They, they still have a big chunk, and it's called the Shanghai faction around the former president, Zheng Zemin, who people like, uh, for example, Jack Ma, if you want to know what, what he comes out of, it is this Shanghai faction uh, of many billionaires because the Shanghai and, and a lot of the Pacific coast of China – has a very rich, rich, air, um, you know, per capita uh, um, economic base. A lot of these 
forces got their power by working with Western financier interests. Jack Ma is a member of the world, you know, economic forum. He's a trustee. And he was essentially leading a um, a bit of a a coup inside of China, you know, with his speech calling for uh, a, a complete uh, transformation of the Chinese banking system towards something post-industrial. Um, anyway, there's a lot of elites that if you just give them a ticket for doing things that are illegal, they have so much money that they don't care. But if you say, OK, well, you're not allowed to travel on, you know, uh, high speed rail trains by uh, doing the things you've done or, for example, um, your children will not have access to these elite schools, then that's a real incentive for a lot of them to get into line. So in that sense, also, so social credit yeah. is actually kind of working to prevent the upper middle classes and, and some of the upper classes from uh, totally antisocial behavior. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's a way of behaviorally getting a leash, <laughs> transforming the behavior of the more dangerous parts of the elite. And uh, and also for people who have been getting money is, you know, they're the Chinese government generally looks away. They, they turn they turn their shoulder because there are, there are a lot of Christians. There's like 50 million Christians. Um, there's there's a lot of underground churches and most of them, they don't care. Yeah, Matt, uh, I'm I'm losing you for a second here. Not sure if I'm still broadcasting. Okay, huh? you're back. Sorry, you you oh. uh, you cut out for a okay. second. Oh, okay. So I'm just saying, like a lot of these these groups do tend to get provably money transfers from uh, Western intelligence agencies, like China Aid is a big one tied to the NED. And for those that are receiving money, that's part of the the Chinese constitution is no religious group shall be. Uh, uh, subject to control or uh, financing by foreign forces uh, or that disrupt the public order. They will not be allowed to engage. You you will get a lower social credit score if you find yourself participating in something that could, that smells like color revolution. You can also get out of your social credit too. Like you can recover pretty easily in China versus let's say I make this point in my, my articles that the type of sim, you know similar things that we already have here are very difficult to get out of, right? Just being at a January 6th, um, you know, protest on Capitol Hill has gotten people in prison on forever do not no fly lists uh, or are just per perpetually now unhirable in the West. Or if, you know, you go bankrupt because COVID has shut down your bank, your economy, not your bank, sorry, your economy, your, your business, uh, and you have gone bankrupt. It's nearly impossible for so many people to get out of having, you know, that type of, you know, terrible credit that will prevent yeah, them yeah, from if, if accessing a mortgage. If, if you're a professor, and you're pushed out of the university by politicians for being a 9-11 conspiracy theorist, uh, it's going to be very hard to get rehired <laughs> again in the American Academy, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, so you're not alone, right? Credit. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But it's it's more formalized, though, and it's more systematic in China. What What are the kinds of things that actually go into the average person's social credit score? Oh, there's a uh, there's a lot of variables and there's 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 not like one sing single model. There's there's many, many dozens of models being applied to various parts of China. Um, for the most part, there's a tendency towards, you know, like if you have if you've not paid your uh, a ticket, you're derelict on, on paying a fine or a ticket there that will re reduce your social credit score you're smoking in you know no smoking well, areas like or something reports in the west yeah kind of kind of it's it's yeah i mean there there's a whole myriad of things but i mean 
and I'm I'm sure that there are excesses, you know. I'm I'm sure that this is not like I wouldn't go out and defend it. I I don't like a lot of aspects of this. Um, but you know, it's not as bad as people think it is at the same time too. And as long as you're not doing anything which is again tied to international oligarchical operations in any way, uh, then you're generally good. Um, so overall, it, it's it's that we have. Go back to the oligarchy. There is a provable oligarchy. Most people who fall for the anti-China stuff, they just haven't taken the time to fully understand what is the Anglo-American oligarchy really? What is its agenda, its operating system? How has it moved over the past century or centuries? Because it's one continuous function um, that you know is 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 active everywhere, and. It's ultimately still afraid of the thing it was afraid of, you know, when uh, 1776 happened or when FDR was trying to work with his Chinese and Russian counterparts to create an anti-imperial world architecture of win-win cooperation founded upon big development projects, which was subverted by his early death and the rise of a new Rhodes Scholar, you know, Anglo-American crowd that took control of U.S. policy with the British and that ran roughshod over the world for the next, you know, what is it now, 75 years, 80 years? Um, so it's just a, getting a better grasp of this history helps so, so much to really get a, a sense of like, what is the, where's this thing coming from? What is China dealing with in that sense? Right. Well, you mentioned the history of the Taiping rebellion and the way that religion has been used by outside powers to divide and conquer China. We see religion being used that way today in, in the Muslim world. I've recently been on press TV and, and on this radio show, actually, debating the issue of to what extent Daesh or ISIS is, in fact, a Western divide and conquer operation from the get go. And, and with regard to China, there's uh, Tibet with its religious nationalism. There's Xinjiang with its religiously infused nationalism. And then you could even argue that in uh, Taiwan, there's a kind of a uh, religion of Western or cosmopolitan liberalism, kind of an, an anti-Chinese uh, mindset that's a little bit like a kind of a local nationalistic religion as well. And mm. it looks like Taiwan is the hot spot right now. Uh, Daniel Pinchbeck in the first hour said he didn't see, he, said he thought there was virtually no chance of a hot war uh, between the U.S. and China. I'm not so sure. And, and maybe you could reflect on that and on the oh. sort of religious ideological factor there. Oh, yeah. No, I I, I don't know. I, I really liked uh, I looked at some of his, his work uh, on cultural uh, commentaries, and I think it's really, really, really good. Um, but yeah, uh, I don't know what he's how he's missing this. But uh, no, the fact is that China's backyard is replete, replete with U.S. military operations. And this this is a reactivation of Obama's Asia pivot strategy to the to a very high degree. I mean, the U.S. operates something like what is it? Uh, 20,000 troops in, in South Korea. They're setting up a THAAD missile shield in South Korea. In Japan, there's like 50,000 troops. The Philippines is restarting their U.S. Uh, uh, military agreements, running all sorts of operations as well with the U.S. Um, Japan, big time as well. Um, and the U.S. is con continuously running war games, operation, all sorts of um, military warships passing through uh, disputed waters of the South China Sea. 
and the Taiwan Straits as well. The Canadian ships with the U.S. battleships have just already uh, provocatively moved through Taiwan. And I think it's not even to think. I, I know it's been recently admitted by, by the Chinese government that they have had dozens of U.S. Um, special forces operatives training the Taiwanese military. Yeah, yeah, they're, um, starting, which, they're starting to admit that now, and and they're saying and doing things that seem like they're really strong provocations. And 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 it's part of clearly, clearly the uh, operating the operational doctrine of what was known as full spectrum dominance, and this is tied to the anti ballistic missile shield. Uh, which was begun by Dick Cheney around Russia's perimeter as NATO expanded. And this is, again, thanks to Soros in many ways, with a lot of his operations uh, and his democracy movements throughout the 1990s in the post-Soviet space, putting in local deep state operatives throughout what were formerly Warsaw Pact countries that then begged to be a part of NATO. And in each one of these countries, there was the expansion of of um, you know, U.S. funded primarily military systems and, and uh, missiles that could be converted to an attack mode very easily to destroy Russia's response capability under a nuclear first strike. Uh, China has had to deal with now the same policy around its perimeter. It's all one singular policy because China and Russia have a strategic partnership of survival with other countries joining that that um, new system. So indeed, like Taiwan and Hong Kong and Tibet and Xinjiang are the four weak spots that um, have been – there's been a maximum amount of effort to capitalize, capitalize upon any type of regional, ethnic, or other differences uh, within these areas to amplify chaos and to provoke separation movements. I mean, you know, just quickly jumping back to Xinjiang, people forget that the groups that fought with ISIS, the Chinese uh, radicalized uh, Muslims that have – you know, been radicalized in Xinjiang, fought and cut their teeth working with ISIS in Syria and in, in Iraq. And, uh, you know, China's had to deal with that. They're part of the East Tur- Turkmenistan. Isn't, isn't it funny how ISIS is always actually doing the dirty work of the empire? Absolutely. And I don't know whether the, the people receiving the money and the logistical support from the Western imperialists who are in ISIS, they just think of it as like, oh, Allah works in mysterious ways. I don't know how they justify that. Or are they just themselves like, you know, uh, covert Satanists? Maybe they are. I don't know. All I know is, yeah, that's very ironic. And they have a separatist movement to create. They don't see Xinjiang as a province of China. They see it as the as the East Tur- Turkmenistan, um, you know, uh, nation. Uh, there is CIA sponsorship going back to the 50s uh, with weapons and other things for the Dalai, Dalai Lama radical extremists, including the Dalai Lama's own brother, who was a very violent reactionary separatist receiving CIA money. And this is openly admitted by CIA documents that one can read online even today. Um, you know, that, that's which, an interesting story. Many people don't know. So how, did the Dalai Lama maintain uh, close relations with this brother? Yep. You never, yeah. Yep. Yeah. He never never cut off relations or anything. He was always a, a part of this operation, um, maintaining himself a sort of a peaceful appearance only, kind of like Soros. It's all about appearance, but protecting a, a very radicalized, uh, very violent um, movement. And uh, I mean, that's why he's not allowed back in China. You know, it's not that he's like China just doesn't like Buddhism. They're, they're you know, tons of Chinese are Buddhist. They have no problem with that. They don't like separatist movements that are funded by the CIA. But, but and, you know, let, let, let's quickly say uh, that when you talk to the people who support these separatist movements, the points that you hear, and I, I did have one uh, Uyghur woman on who was she was working with an NGO and obviously sort of cooperating with the empire in trying to push back against China. But but these people argue 
that uh, there's a kind of Chinese, uh, call it a, a replacement almost, you know, like the Americans who were afraid of being replaced by immigrants. Well, the uh, people in Xinjiang uh, see a lot of uh, Han Chinese immigrants coming in. So there's a, an ethnic uh, issue here as well as the religious issue. So they feel like their culture is being swamped and wiped out. Uh, by this Han Chinese culture, which they see as a very different alien culture, and they would kind of prefer to have some control over their borders and not have so many people coming in, and they would like to be able to do what they want. And I'm sure the Tibetans feel the same way. From everything that I've I've seen, w- was she actually based in Xinjiang, or was she based in like no, no, Turkey no, or something she's, like that, or Germany? She was in Canada. She's in Canada. Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's what I'm noticing. Like a lot of the most uh, vocal people who ha- who express these opinions actually are not based in uh, Xinjiang itself because there's hundreds of videos you just see on the ground of like life in Xinjiang. And now that terrorism has been like got wiped out effectively, um, there there's completely transformative processes of economic development and harmony. I mean, people are really happy that there's this new future in awaiting them. Including like, you know, there's interviews with tons of people both in Xinjiang and tons of interviews with locals in Tibet There you see there's now hundreds of community centers and uh, performance centers where they are cherishing their language. They're not losing their language at all. They're still teaching that in their schools. They're, they're, they're teaching their dances, their traditions. You can go and see them performed all over the place easily. Um, so there's a real celebration there's a, a, of, of their natural historical uh, cultural values as well as also learning mandarin and chinese history and other things too there there's a there's a harmony of of uh you know different interests that are working quite nicely under economic large-scale projects of development uh, it's transformative and i think that scares the hell out of a lot of the people who run things like the um the world Uyghur congress which is a german-based organization openly getting money from the National Endowment for Democracy, and that's been admitted to by the the head of the organization. Um, many of these groups uh, have found support or at least protection in um, in Turkey, which I think up until recently has been playing a bit of a, a dangerous dual game in the New World Order, trying to sort of like, you know, walk in both worlds, which is not very wise, uh, but still protecting a lot of these groups who are then using it as a as a launch pad to run anti-China propaganda from Turkey, which, you know, for much of the time during the civil the civil war in uh, Syria, uh, Turkey has been a major supporter of ISIS groups uh, masquerading as the Free Syrian Army, buying up their oil and things like that. That that's since reduced quite a bit since Fethullah Gulen launched his attempted coup with the CIA. Fethullah Gulen is kind of like one of these weird cultish. Um, billionaires who receives protection, lives in the U.S. in a compound, just like the head of the uh, Falun Gong, which runs Epoch Times. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Lee Hong. Yeah, that's an interesting parallel, isn't it? Yeah, very, very much so. And both of them seem to have, I mean, Fatullah Gulen, I got to do a little bit more work on it. You probably know more than I do, but it does seem to be tied to certain British Freemasonic networks uh, that were active in the 1920s and earlier in um, in the Ottoman Empire. Um yeah, that's but entirely that's a, possible. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems it just smells of it everywhere I look. I, I have to get my mind around it a little bit more. But definitely, uh, Li Hongzhi is like a you know it's like an Asian Scientology cult. The guy literally, the guy who heads Falun Gong, it masquerades as like this nice Qigong exercise group that preaches compassion and tolerance and forbearance. But I mean, when you actually like look at this guy's history and you look at what he thinks. Personally, in direct interviews, he thinks he is sort of like a messiah character organizing a, 
uh, a battle of inter- interdimensional UFOs and aliens uh, that he's like personally responsible for, like managing this this gigantic sci-fi thing, which is something like an L- out of an L. Ron Hubbard uh, <laughs> uh, wet dream. That's kind of so, cool. I don't really see any exposés about that in the Epoch Times. I don't even see him editorializing <laughs> about that. I think they're a bit embarrassed by the guy, frankly. So they try to keep him in his 400-acre uh, compound in New York. Um, but yeah, it's it's a widely – it's a huge umbrella organization. And there's a reason why China kicked out this this you know nut job in the, in 97. And the amount of influence that he has with his – he – I mean, you think he's a puppet, you know, but I think that his organization represents a very, very powerful cultural warfare op and psyop, which has, you know, it runs popular dances that are all over the world, uh, you know, and, and that are featuring the Chinese always as the, the communist parties trying to destroy the beautiful Taoist, you know, civilizational traditions. And there's all this like subtle uh, messaging. But the Epoch Times is probably their most useful and dangerous tool because I like a lot of the Epoch Times coverage of like the nefarious stuff going down by the great resetters inside of the United States or George Soros. They're pretty good at that, and that's what makes them so attractive. But then when it comes to foreign policy, now they have you looking through a fucked up lens of uh, – oh, sorry for the language, by the way. I'm, I shouldn't do that. Oh, yeah. Uh, you put a nickel in the swear jar. Yeah, well. <laughs> but they have you then looking at the world from the standpoint of, of how, the, how Steve Bannon thinks, you know, through the mind of Steve Bannon. Um, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting comparison too. Yeah, with, with Fedela Gulen, uh, there's a lot of you know basically good stuff going on there, which is uh, Turkey's preservation of its Islamic heritage by way of Bediüzzaman Said Nursi. Uh, there have been many of these Nursi groups that have grown up in Turkey, and Fedela Gulen uh, became the leader of one of them. And uh, he's he's pro Sufi, which I think is good. You know, the Sufis were brutally persecuted under uh, Ataturk in his vicious uh, cultural genocide of Turkey. And so the fact that there are all of these people celebrating Fethullah Gulen, I'm sorry, uh, Buddhism and Said Nursi, including Gulen's group, uh, is in itself a positive thing as far as I'm concerned. It's sort of in the same way that I would think, you know, preservation of uh, Taoist heritage in China would be a, a good thing. Uh, and I, I would actually lean more towards uh, ideologically sympathizing with Taoism than with communism personally. Um, but it's always possible for a basically good movement or idea to get hijacked. And when you have these charismatic cult leader types uh, pushing a good idea that's good in and of itself, they can turn it into something pretty nefarious. Yeah, I mean, the, the the devil would never be allowed into your house if he didn't if he just said, hey, I'm the devil. Let me in. You know, there's always something very seductive and good um, that's that's used as a, a bit of honey uh, to cover the poison. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's subtle. But um, but I think, yeah, when you when you look at the change of behavior of um, Erdogan since shooting down the Russian jet and then, uh, you know, writing his famous letter asking for forgiveness from Putin a few months later and then like two weeks right after openly asking Putin for forgiveness for shooting down the Russian jet over Turkish air, uh, Syrian airspace, uh, which killed a Russian pilot and almost invoked Article uh, 5 of the Collective Security Pact of NATO, right? That was like almost World War III. Um, two weeks after saying, I'm sorry, <laughs> um, you had the activation of this coup d'etat with networks of 
of Gulen networks that had highly embedded themselves, kind of like a fight club scenario is weird, all throughout the administration, the government, the, the military, which luckily was put down through the help of, of the, uh, the FSB, which provided some, some forward intelligence to Erdogan to, uh, to get to safety. And the people sort of helped also put that down. But we saw that this was a completely Western organized uh, attempted coup to bring Turkey back into place to keep it, you know, antagonistic to Russia the way it should be uh, in the mind of some oligarchs. And well, uh, since then, just a, colon- a colony of NATO. Exactly. And and uh, and since then, yeah, like like Erdogan has gone a little bit renegade in a, in a useful way by buying S-400s from from Russia and increasingly trying to push back against uh, some of these more nefarious diaspora power structures that have been sponsoring ISIS and other things. Idlib is still a big issue. Mm-hmm. But other, all that to say, uh, China, Turkey is also moving moving east towards the Belt and Road Initiative and trying very desperately to be a part of the middle corridor, um, which is vital for their development pathway, as well as the north-south transportation corridor that uh, Russia is building with India and Iran. Uh, that could feasibly move through Turkey and is vital for Turkey's uh, survival. So there's the, these interesting dynamics, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you've you've captured a lot of really good stuff, uh, and I highly recommend that people who are kind of regular consumers of the uh, Epoch Times and and other sort of uh, anti CCP propaganda operations, which is really most of the mainstream and much of the alternative media today. Should, they should really read your three-part series just to get sort of the other view and, and compare it with the stuff they're being force-fed all the time. Uh, and I, I actually wondered you know, to what extent not only the Epoch Times, obviously they're tolerated doing the kind of stuff they do because they're serving a uh, kind of a CIA NATO function. Uh, mm-hmm. And and I, I wonder you know how much of alternative media is – uh, steered in these ways, uh, you know, if, is it easier to get an audience if you're in alternative media if you bash China, for example? Yeah, I don't, I don't really know. Um, I it's sort of taken on a bit of a, a life of its own in the zeitgeist, but um, definitely there is in alternative media. There's more willingness from an audience to think more seriously about the nature of conspiracies as an intelligible, investigatable thing than in the mainstream, which tends to never talk about that sort of thing. Maybe you can get allusions to it here and there, but not really. Um, and so with that openness of mind to, to go there, so to speak, um, you can negotiate a discussion around, well, what what is the causal agencies shaping this conspiracy? What, you know, because this China did not create the Club of Rome, the depopulation agenda of the 19 early 70s, right? That was that was what Kissinger was a part of. That Kissinger was the teacher of Klaus Schwab um, directly in uh, in Harvard. Um, Maury Strong, right, who is an asset for the British Empire. This this man was a Rockefeller asset. He became the head of Power Corps. He was a privy counselor. He was the co-founder of the Club of Rome. He was the co-founder of the World Economic Forum as well. Maury Strong, the guy who said we have to – it's the responsibility of world leaders to make industrial civilization collapse to save the environment. He's the guy who founded the IPCC, the International uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, so-called, you know, in many ways the father of the Great Reset. Um, these are people who are not – were, were they getting their orders from China? 
Hell no. They wanted China to to be the Morlocks in the, you know, <laughs> the H.G. Wellsian sort of world of the L.O.I., you know, beautiful idiots and the Morlock dirty subhuman producer industrialists underground, um, but managed by a supranational ubermenschen. Uh, of of you know more than humans above the ground which is what you have with the transhumanist sort of cult which a lot of these world economic forum you know idiots they they all see themselves in this way of being the uh the controllers of the new the new darwinian evolution or the new post darwinian evolution um that's that's people like yuval harari and musk and uh you know they're all like that but so china yeah, didn't originate about those guys yeah yeah and, and china didn't originate any of this stuff they've been fighting fighting against this and suffering and, and having to deal with their own internally organized deep state, which frankly has been there since in its current form since the opium wars when HSBC from London set up the international drug trade in a virulent way, which never went away. It still manages international drugs, HSBC, right? That's who's laundering uh, most of the drugs today. And books have been written on this as well as funding international terrorism. And uh, they were set up to just, you know, destroy China and the, the triads as well, that's been a bane of China's existence, has been also a, a, a British imperial Freemasonic operation since the 1860s. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a, an ongoing problem, and China's been trying to survive, and they're, they're one of the only countries right now which is standing up and creating a functional alternative system of cooperation based upon some of the principles that the U.S. used to abide by when people like John F. Kennedy were alive. And that has since gone. And ironically, that is the water to put out the fire that's take the, that's consuming our society into a one world government dystopic dark age is the help of China. We can't do it without them, which is why I'll just say at the I know we're, we're hitting the end of our time here. But this is why Soros said the two greatest threats to his system is Xi Jinping's Belt and Road and Donald Trump's USA because of the U.S.-China trade agreement first phase that was going into operation that very month that he was speaking at Davos in January 2020, which involved a – and Trump even said so for the months leading up to that, that the U.S., Russia, and China, he said that, should – instead of putting their money in weapons, should be putting all of this money into building projects together in the benefit of each other. So that's why they put so much effort into Russiagate, into trying four years to overthrow Trump – uh, that's why they installed people like Bannon or later like Bolton as, you know, different types of clash of civilization psychopaths into his world to basically control the policies or Pompeo later on to initiate conflict with China. And it was going in a, in a pretty positive direction until the Wuhan, the, the you know, the, the Wuhan lab thing came up. And, and, okay, and all we of a sudden, about 30 seconds. So quick, okay, quickly, yeah. was was this a bio attack on China as Ron Unz thinks? Was yeah. it a depopulation uh, Malthusian attack on the world or both? Um, both, but it's 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 a fake thing. I, I don't think that that COVID-19 is a real issue. I think it's it's a lot of it is like CO2 being demonized, which has nothing to do with temperature change. It's uh, it, it was part of an operation to get a one world neo techno techno feudalist uh, solution. So that's what I would say. But, yeah, it's an attack on China, too. Okay. Well, we'll probably talk more about that down the line as more information on that emerges, and there's always a lot more to talk about. But, yeah, I appreciate your great work. Uh, Matt Errett, uh, keep up the amazingly prolific work. I'm, I'm really uh, impressed at the amount of high-quality stuff that you're turning out. Thanks, Kevin. Okay, take care.
That's uh, Matthew Eric. Kevin Barrett. The website is truthjihad.com. My false flag weekly news there. I broadcast every Saturday morning, 11 to noon Eastern time. False flag weekly news. That's coming up uh, in 12 hours or so from now. So until the next radio show or until false flag weekly news, sleep well. See you either tomorrow or next week.